6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Major Prophets. Well, we are in Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, and we are in hour 11, where we're going to do a quick survey of the major prophets. Isaiah, of course, is uh, the first, the largest. When they say major prophets, by the way, I should point out to you, that's not because they're more important. It's a misleading label. It's a label of a librarian. Just means these books are the larger ones. There are five major prophets, and uh, there are you know, 12 so-called minor prophets. This just means they're small books. Some of the most interesting prophecies, some of the most important ones, are in the minor prophets. So don't let that uh, labeling fool you. Isaiah is well known as the Messianic prophet. There is more stuff in his book uh, that anticipates the Messiah in both his roles. Not only as the suffering servant in his first advent, but also when he comes in power and glory in the second advent. Jeremiah is the next of the major prophets. And he really focuses on the divine judgment upon the nation. Not just the nation of Israel, but the nation's plural. But he has a very grim tale, and he's also known as the weeping prophet, because he had to, in effect, preside over a nation that was disintegrating. Ezekiel is next of the major prophets, who focuses on the coming restoration of Israel. And he wrote, of course, during the Babylonian captivity, but focuses his attention on the ultimate destiny of Israel. One of the great tragedies in the Christian church is a broad illiteracy among Christians about God's program for Israel. God is not finished with Israel, as many people teach, but they have an incredible climax forthcoming, and Ezekiel is among the many that talk about that. Daniel is another of the major prophets, but we've already covered him because half his book is historical, and we use that as our excuse to cover it in depth already. So we really have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel to focus on. You may notice, just to make a comment, to help you be sensitive to when I have something on the screen that's from the Old Testament, it'll show in the little scrolls typically, and if it's a New Testament, it's in a, in a, 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 in a vellum or in a, uh, uh, what purports to be a, a you know, a, a codex. As we pop from Old and New Testament, that'll make you sensitive, I think, to where that quote is coming from. But um, as you may recall from our review of the historical books, the, after Solomon died, there was a civil war, and we had the nation divided in the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom calling itself the House of Israel. The southern kingdom ultimately goes into the Babylonian captivity, and uh, the prophets that we're going to be talking about, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, are uh, the major ones that we're focusing on. Uh, Isaiah really uh, administered during the kingdoms of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, all the way to Manasseh. 
Jeremiah starts in the days of Josiah and continues right into the Babylonian captivity through Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Now, Daniel, of course, writes during the Babylonian captivity and, and beyond. Daniel's transported uh, to Babylon as a teenager in the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar and Ezekiel in the second. The focus, thus, of these major prophets is primarily the southern kingdom all the way from Jotham through into the Babylonian captivity. So let's get into uh, Isaiah. Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any other single prophet. Jesus quotes most from Deuteronomy as any book, but uh, the New Testament writers in general quote more from Isaiah than any of the others. He has a style that is very lofty, very majestic in terms of vocabulary. Uh, his vocabulary uh, rivals that of Shakespeare and Milton, who are known as having the largest English vocabularies. Um, very lofty style, loftier than Shakespeare, Milton, or Homer, and some of the other literary greats. One of the greatest discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. You know, in 1947 at Qumran, um, that's a place about seven miles south of Jericho, they uh, discovered all kinds of very precious documents. But probably one of the greatest of all the discoveries was Isaiah and what made the, because they, they found a complete scroll. About, usually we have fragments here and there of various things. This was a complete scroll of Isaiah and the remarkable discovery was that it wasn't changed. The astonishing thing is with the exception I think of half a dozen single letters the entire scroll is identical to the ones that we've had before this discovery. And this uh, uh, is dated by the experts to be about 200 BC. It is the uh, most recent copy that is uh, uh, complete. The fact that it's um, unchanged is an incredible testimony to the diligence and the discipline of the scribes. Because what they would do is when they copied, bear in mind they didn't have copiers, they didn't have printing. They, everything was hand copied over, of course. And so as they copied a page, they would then sum, all the letters have numerical values, they'd sum the page, and if it didn't agree with the page they copied, they didn't correct it, they burned it and started over. In other words, page by page, they had to be perfect. And the rigors of the scribes is what, what the result of all of that is a very faithful copying a very faithful uh, continuing of the text until printing, of course, was available. So the Qumran discovery really endorses the accuracy of the Bible that we have. Now, Isaiah's whole life was spent under the shadow of the threatening Assyrian power. When he was a young man, Assyria carried away the uh, northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, we're focusing, of course, on the southern kingdom, but uh, Assyria is the big power. And, and uh, so the, the northern kingdom was not just deported, it disappeared because the Assyrians had a policy of taking their captives and spreading out through the, the empire, having, forcing people to change regions and to, literally to break up dynasties and so forth. He also witnessed 
the ruin of the southern, the southern kingdom also, the entire nation, except for Jerusalem. A few years after the northern kingdom fell, 46 walled cities of Judah were destroyed, and 200,000 captives were taken to Assyria also. So they, they, had, they suffered there. The grand achievement of Isaiah's life was when the Assyrians were stopped at the walls of Jerusalem. They'd captured all these other cities, but um, they uh, literally were stopped by an angel of God. One night after dinner, one angel slaughtered 185,000 Syrian troops. And Sennacherib retreated never again to try that again. So uh, he learned his lesson in effect. So they were stopped rather dramatically. And so Sennacherib, uh, even uh, 20 years later, never again came against Jerusalem. So uh, the principal messages of Isaiah is judgment for lack of loyalty and their sin in the country. He nevertheless focuses on the coming restoration of the nation. So on the one hand, many of the prophets hammer away at the sinfulness of the nation and, what was, and the dire consequences thereof, but many of them also focused on God's ultimate restoration of the land. But one of the things that Isaiah particularly emphasizes is the coming Messiah, and that it will come, the Messiah will come through the house of David. There are um, a number of style items that we should be sensitive to as we study Isaiah. One of the things you'll encounter is what some scholars call telescoping perspectives. It's as if they have lenses of different focal length. They'll always typically put together two prophecies, one near and one far. And part of that's for the perspective of the topic they're dealing with, and part of it is a form of authentication. When the first thing comes true, it tends to build confidence that the second one will, if you will. So there are many prophecies that are sort of double references, and we need to be sensitive to that. Often, the prophet will be dealing with something local, and as he talks about something local, the language will go far beyond the local thing and give us insights that are far more profound. We need to be sensitive to that. It's almost like he has a zoom lens, if you will. Another thing you'll notice in prophecy in general, and in Isaiah particularly, along the way, there will be little treasures dropped by the wayside, little incidental insights en route to the main point he's making, little side comments that turn out to be incredibly profound. Uh, there are little encouragements in my mind every time you see one of those. Now, the, the highlights of the book, of course, the Messianic prophecies is exceeded only by the Psalms. The, mes the Psalms, of course, are full of Messianic prophecies. One of the things he does early in the book, he, has, he is treated in chapter 6 to a vision of the throne of God. Now, we read that in the Bible, sort of, you know, sort of take it for granted. It's rather staggering, even for a prophet, to actually be granted an opportunity to behold the throne room of the universe. And uh, we see it in uh, Isaiah 6. We'll find it in Ezekiel 1 and 10. We find it in Revelation chapter 4 and following. These are uh, interesting passages that uh, are worthy of very careful study. The other thing that Isaiah focuses on is, on, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's why Isaiah, I often facetiously say that Handel wrote the book of Isaiah. 
and I'm kidding, of course, because, but so much of Handel's Messiah and his things come, of course, out literally, word, word, word for word, out of Isaiah. One of the things that both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about that's going to be very important to you and me is the doom of Babylon. They both talk, both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about the destruction of Babylon, which did not happen historically. Many of your Bible helps, unfortunately, are in error. Babylon was conquered by the Persians back in 539, but without a battle. And even as late as the 1800s AD, it's still there, there's still people living there, even though it's been eclipsed by other caravan routes and so forth. But the Bible talks about a dramatic, catastrophic destruction of the city on the banks of the Euphrates that uh, merits our attention because if we're correct in our perceptions here, there are things going on in your daily newspaper that are pointing to a direction that is forthcoming that both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk a great deal about. So the doom of Babylon will be a major topic. The other thing that Isaiah highlights is the fall of Lucifer. Where did Satan come from? What's he all about? Is that just an idiom of English literature? Or is he a real living being? And indeed he is. You want to understand that. We've talked about the letter to Cyrus already that's in the book, but it's one of the dramatic elements of it. The Messiah and his atonement we'll talk about in chapter 53. Some people call that passage the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. Incredible passage, both in its scope and its reach, but also in some of the treasures that are hidden underneath the text. And we'll show you some of those. And then, of course, the book closes near the end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it talks about his bloodstained approach. Most of what we know about the millennium, that Jesus is actually going to rule the planet Earth from Jerusalem. There's a particular thousand-year period that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. But most of what we know about that period does not come from Revelation 20. It comes from Isaiah 65 and 66, the last two chapters of Isaiah. And we're going to take a little addendum. We're going to talk a little bit about the so-called two Isaiahs. But it's interesting, getting back, uh, there was a plot against the throne of the king, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. They mounted an expedition to depose Ahaz, the king of Judah, and to place a son of Tabeel on the throne of Judah. This gets thwarted, fortunately. Uh, they, were going to, they were literally going to try to wipe out the house of David. And that's pretty foolish. If you understand, the house of David was, has been supernaturally ordained and protected by God against all kinds of assaults. And so uh, this is obviously ill-fated. It's well known to students of cryptography because in Isaiah chapter 7, there's some cryptography hidden under the text that reveals what the plot, what would have happened, if it, what they were planning to do if they had won. So it's an interesting study, and I won't bore you with the details of that except to highlight that it's there. But there was an attempt to make a full end of the house of David. But it would not come to pass, as Isaiah summarizes. But it leads to an incident where, the, uh, uh, through Isaiah, he says to Ahaz, the king, even that, although that plot has been foiled, he says, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or the height above. Can you imagine getting that opportunity? The prophet of God comes to you as the king and says, hey, it's a challenge. Ask a sign. Whatever you can think of. But Ahaz isn't interested in doing that. He says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. 
And he said, Hear me now, O house of David. This is uh, uh, Isaiah speaking for the Lord. Hear ye now, O house of David. No, he shifts now from Ahaz to the whole house of David. So this sign, even though Ahaz wasn't going to play ball here, Isaiah gives it to him anyway, and the focus is an assurance to the whole house of David. It's a very profound thing coming here. He said, Hear ye now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the Hebrew, it's Ha'alma, which is a word that means virgin. Now, some skeptics will quibble and say, well, that word can, under certain conditions, also simply mean a young maid. Well, that's pretty silly in the first place, because he says, the Lord's going to give you a sign. Behold, a young girl's going to have a baby. <laughs> that's a sign, you know. <laughs> no, it, the context clearly demands the... the uh, denotative use of that term. But just to clarify that, three centuries before the birth of Christ, the best Hebrew scholars available translated this into Greek. And they used the word parthenos, which is a virgin, an unmarried girl. And in the Greek, it's very precise, unambiguous. That's what it means. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, or the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now, and so, we, of course, this is all familiar to you. you. You always celebrate this around Christmas time. Christmas has got nothing to do with the birth of Christ, but we celebrate it at that time. It's not biblical, but we won't go down that path here. But we find a lot from Isaiah in our Christmas cards and elsewhere. Uh, in Isaiah 9:6, you've all heard this: "For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful." Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end, and upon the throne of David, and upon His kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this." Boy, that's quite, quite a passage. Now, notice verse 6. Let's go back here. You've heard this verse many times, but you may not have realized that the child is born is a human. The son that is given is God. This is, in that verse, is included an attribute of the unique identity of Jesus Christ. Both man and God in one person. And that, of course, we don't that doctrine doesn't hang on this verse alone, There's, but it's just, a, it's again, a, a, you know, a supportive of that. His name shall be called Wonderful. You may recall back in Judges 13 when Manoah had a strange visitor that was announcing that their child was going to be Samson. And so, who, who am I speaking with? He said, my name is Wonderful. <laughs> well, he's not using it as an adjective. He's using it as a proper noun. Who do you think that person was? Well, I would argue from that he identified himself with Isaiah 9-6, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. But anyway, uh, of the increase of his government uh, uh, and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David. Did the throne of David exist 
during the days of Mary and Joseph on the planet Earth. No. Rome was ruling things, and they appointed an Edomite. An Edomite is the traditional enemy of Israel. There's a whole study of Edom you need to do, but uh, he was an Edomite, uh, Herod. Did Jesus Christ ever sit on the throne of David? Not yet. Is he sitting on it now? No, he's sitting on his father's throne. See, the book of Revelation is all about things out of place. See, Israel, Israel's not in the land that needs to be in the land. Jesus is not on his throne, he's on his father's throne. And uh, the church is on the earth, but should be in heaven. So all those things get adjusted in the book of Revelation. So, uh, but we'll move on here. When you get to the passage in, in Isaiah that some scholars call the Holy of Holies, we'll call it chapter 53, although I want to highlight something else here. Many times, you have to remember that the chapter divisions were added in the 13th century, and, and they're very helpful. But you should also be sensitive to the fact that sometimes the chapters start too early or too late. Often there's a very key part of a chapter that really is the last verse or two or three of the previous chapter. And conversely, some major passages start a little after. So you should be, just don't take the, recognize the chapter divisions are convenience, but not necessarily inspired. So chapter 53, in a sense, starts with chapter 52 in the last couple of verses. And uh, it is an astonishing passage that uh, uh, in this quick survey, there's some places that we will stop and read it verse by verse because they're so significant, and we'll do that here. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And indeed, he will be very high. He was lifted up on a cross. And Jesus makes that point in John 3, speaking of the analogy with the serpent, uh, uh, the brazen serpent, and so forth. But then there's a verse. Verse 14 is a verse that the King James translators didn't feel you could handle. So they worded it not to be incorrect, but unless you look very carefully, you won't understand what it's really saying. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. What that is actually alluding to is that the abuse that Jesus Christ suffered at the cross, and just prior being put on the cross, was so abusive that he no longer looked human. He was so disfigured, so abused. We, I think, are indebted to Mel Gibson's book of the, uh, movie, The Passion, because I, I think there's many things to commend it. Uh, it's a very useful thing. I know some people are critical of certain subtleties. I think that's quibbling. I think he's done us all a gigantic favor for lots of reasons. Not the least of which, you can open a conversation with any stranger. Hey, have you seen The Passion? And no matter what the answer is, you've got a conversation going. But the one thing, there's two things that Mel couldn't do. One is he couldn't really communicate who he was. See, the crucifixion was not a tragedy. It was an achievement. But that's too complex to try to do in a film. Uh, mission, really. 
The second thing he couldn't do, didn't do anyway, is to carry it all the way. If you think that was tough, if he had been even more accurate, it would have been even more shocking. And we have materials on that, the agony of love and so forth. I'll, I'll leave that here just as a passing mark. Let's go on. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which they had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. And then we're into the body of Isaiah 53, as it's commonly known. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's go back and take a look at that. Notice how often we are in antithesis. He and us. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. See the antithesis going on here. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.